good to see everyone this morning. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25 this morning for our scripture reading. And the text we'll be studying together this morning, Genesis chapter 25. We're looking forward to our family camp all coming up in a few weeks. And uh, I encourage you to keep the date open. Join us for the days if you're not staying overnight. It's always a good time of uh, fellowship and fun and relaxation. Um, good food. Even if it's not cooked right, food is always good when it's cooked over the fire outdoors or under the grill. So join us whenever you can. And uh, we uh, will have classes Saturday and Sunday mornings at 11, our cl Saturday morning class at 11, our morning service at Sunday will be at 11 at uh, Summerlee Campground. If you don't know how to get there, just uh, ask someone who does. It's not too hard to find. And we have uh, campfire services Friday and Saturday evening, which are also enjoyable times to share around the fire. So keep that in your prayers and on your schedule, if you would, please. Also, Bible Camp is going on up in northern Minnesota, amongst the many camps that we've had this this uh, around these various areas this summer, we ask for your prayers this coming week. I'll be speaking in the mornings this coming week, I think at around 10 o'clock. And um, so I appreciate your prayers and, prayer and pray for the young people that will be there as well. So another great opportunity to share God's word with young people. Sometimes their first contact with the gospel through VBSs, camps, and those type of ministries. So pray much for this upcoming week. Verse 22 is where we left off here in Genesis 25. So let's go ahead and read this verse through the end of the chapter. It says, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled, for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are so thankful that you as an almighty God, Father, the creator of the universe, are a God who loves us with an infinite love. Thank you, Father, that you showed that love, especially to us on the cross when the Lord Jesus came to become a man so in order he might die for man. He took away our sins. He bore our sins. He paid our penalty on that cross so that we could be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. And Father, we're thankful that that gift is free. 
All you ask of us is our faith, our trust in the one who gave himself for us. And Father, it truly is amazing grace. And Father, as we gather together this morning, may we do so in a spirit of worship, Father, and reverence for who you are. May we come before your word with respect and awe because your word is settled forever in heaven. Your word is, is forever reliable because you are God who cannot lay, lie and does not change. And Father, may we desire today to not only learn your word, but to put our faith in your word in our daily lives, that we might live it out in a way that would honor you and please you. And so, Father, we pray that you might prepare our hearts this morning, quiet our hearts, settle our thinking, Father, that we might be prepared to be taught by your spirit as we, as we look into your word together today. And Father, we pray for those who might be away from us today, wherever they are, that you'd watch over them, draw them to yourselves, Father. And may we as a church family continue to grow more Christ-like and grow together as a family serving you to reach our community for Christ. And we do pray for our community, Father, for those around us who are so needy, Father. Life seems so broken in so many fronts, and yet, Father, we realize that healing begins with the Lord Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. And so we pray for those around us, Father, maybe even coming to our minds, our friends and neighbors, Father, who need to know the Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would open their hearts, door to the gospel, and that you give us boldness, Father, and willingness to share that good news with those around us, Father, so we might uh, reach our community with the good news of Jesus' love and his death for them on the cross. And Father, we pray as well for our outreach beyond our, beyond our community, Father, for those missionaries we support, maybe friends and families and churches and other areas, Father, where your word goes out. And we pray that you might use your word today. Use it in a mighty way, Father, to open eyes to the good news of the gospel, to encourage the saints to live faithfully for you, Father, that we might stand faithful in an increasingly dark world. And so, Father, we give thanks for each one who's here today. I just pray together that we might glorify you with one mind and one mouth, be our teacher and guide now as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What's that? Maybe I don't want to be seen. Just heard. I know when I look in the mirror, I don't want to be seen. This account we read here in Genesis 25 is real life, isn't it? And the Bible doesn't pull punches. It doesn't sugarcoat things. When God inspired the writers of Scripture to record history and Scripture, they recorded it as it was. And this is a, this is a time of ugliness, isn't it, in some ways, in, in the lives of these Old Testament patriarch, patriarchs. But one of the encouraging things we see in the middle of this is, once again, we see Rebecca praying. She comes to the Lord with her problems, doesn't she? And, and we've seen that pattern with with Isaac and Rebecca, those who have an orientation to turn to God when things aren't going the way she thought. And, and, and the problem she had was that, you know, she says that, you know, I'm feeling I'm, things are supposed to be good, but, you know, what's going on inside of me? Why am I like this, she said, when she inquired of the Lord in verse 22. And the Lord said, it's because there's two nations in your womb, and in essence, these two peoples are going to be competitive. They are, well, the, uh, the, the older is going to serve the younger and so on. And what you really see in this story of Jacob and Esau is competitiveness, don't you? It began right in the womb. Imagine that, bro brothers wrestling even in the womb. And wanting to be the first one out. You know, Jacob grabs onto his heel and says, wait a minute, buddy, I want to be the first one, first one to get the birthright. And we see that these two young men would become separate nations. We know them now as Israel and Edom. They are two different people. One is like a piece of Velcro when he comes out of the womb. He's, 
hairy all over, and the other is a more fair man. And they have a complete different personalities. We saw in verse 27. One's an outdoorsman, and one's that seems to be somewhat a mama's boy, if you want to put it in modern terms. And, and along with, on top of that, we find parental favoritism in verse 28. To add to the already competitive spirit between these two young men, we find parents picking favorites, and that's never healthy in the home, is it? In fact, it leads to, in verse 29, then we have the account of the contested birthright in, between these two young men. And we might think as you read this, well, we think, well, you know, God said he had chose Jacob. He told Rachel here that Jacob's going to uh, be, the, be the number one in the family. He's going to be the one through whom the promises are to be fulfilled, the promises made to Abraham and Isaac, the promise of a of a seed, of a family, of a nation, the promise of a blessing to the whole world, which was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the issue we have to remember is, is God didn't need any help in that. God didn't need a supplanter, that's what Jacob's name means, taking, trying to accomplish God's will for him. God could accomplish it in his own way. Nevertheless, God in his sovereignty did accomplish that. But along the way, we find here Jacob and Esau being competitive. In fact, we find later in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we find an account in regards to Israel's wandering through the wilderness and coming by the place of Edom, and God tells them. He says, a couple things he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 2 is, one, they're going to be afraid of you, which means as they developed as a nation, Israel became the superior nation. But he also told them not to meddle with them because God had given Edom their piece of the land as well in fulfilling his promise really to Abraham that Abraham would be the father of many nations to them. Well, after all this competitiveness in the womb and the difference in personalities and so on, we come to verse 29, the, when, they be, when they become older, we find this account on Esau selling his birthright. And, you know, you'd think in verse 29 that this relationship would work. You know, Jacob was the cook and Esau was the hunter and you know that's a good combination one one provides the game and the other cooks it up you think that would be a complimentary relationship but there was a problem there Jacob still wanted to be number one just like in the womb he wanted to be the firstborn and it really is an expression of the flesh really what you see here in this chapter is the expression of the natural nature of man whose, pr whose primary expression is selfishness you know, me first is our motto in life. You know, we think life is all about me, and that's how we often live our lives. And it's because sin has turned us inward rather than upward. That's what sin did to mankind. It turned us to be more concerned about ourselves than about God. And Jacob wanted to be number one. He wanted that birthright. Now, the birthright was the privilege of the firstborn. It gave them the right to be the primary heir, to run the family business, and to be in charge. Jacob wanted it in the womb, and he connived here in this account to get what he wanted. And later, along with his mother's help, he manipulates his father into giving him the blessing. And as we look at it, you know, from, uh, from where we are today, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's wrong with this picture? What's missing here? What's lacking in Jacob's attitude here in this family relationship? Because competitiveness can be a healthy thing. It can be a good thing. We can be competitive without having conflict. But here Jacob's competitiveness was rooted in a selfishness that'd be number one. And because of that, it, he didn't 
exhibit a love for his brother. I think a verse, 1 John 3.17 really comes to bear on this passage where it says this, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I mean, that's picture-perfect application of this passage. Jacob had the ability to meet the needs of his brother who was hungry, and, but he wasn't compassionate. He called, he, instead, he took a selfish approach, and God says, how does the love of God abide in him? And so maybe God left this passage in, in Scripture for us to recognize that what's lacking here is the love and compassion of Jesus Christ, of Jehovah God, in this confrontation. You know, we sometimes look at this passage as Esau making a terrible decision that had long-term consequences for a short-term gratification as being evil. It's the example we see there. Esau made a terrible choice. But we also see here Jacob was, was, was also a bad example. He was selfish and manipulative in taking advantage of Esau's vulnerability. He was only interested in his own ends. All these things are perspectives and desires of the flesh. Now, from a human perspective, someone might look at Jacob and slapped him on the back and said, good play, good business move. You got what you wanted. It was well played. But from a divine perspective, this is an, the ugliness of the flesh at its worst. And we recognize today that really this, this selfishness, this desire to put me first, to be number one, to gratify ourselves, is at the root of many, if not most, of the world's ills today. It's at the root, whether it's a lust, desire for power, a desire to get what I want no matter the means, maybe abuse of people that inconvenience or annoy me, or sometimes we just abuse people because we want to take out our frustrations. Or, or tragically, at times, some are abused because for personal gratification. The flesh. In fact, even secular marriage counselors recognize that the number one cause of marital problems is selfishness, even though they don't know the scriptures. That's what we see here, and that's what we see throughout our life. You know, we talked recently about John 8.32, where Jesus says, the truth will set you free. It's a truth about God. It's a truth about ourselves. It's a truth of God's word. It's a truth about how we live. But that freedom in this passage would, could be applied to freedom from ourselves, from our own fleshy desires. As we find the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and his work and teaching, how we, uh, how we can live free from this type of destructive behavior, ungodly behavior. Jacob here pictures the epitome of the flesh and all his selfishness. Esau, on the other hand, pictures for us the desire for instant gratification. That's a characteristic of the flesh, isn't it? The short-sighted gratification often causes one to ignore the potential long-term consequences. And we think, wow, isn't that a picture of today's culture? People that get into drugs, drinking, Illicit sex and all the destructive behaviors for the sake of a quick thrill and short-term gratification. Where the thrill of the moment outweighs the potential brokenness and hurt that one's action may cause down the road. We thank God that he warns us about these things. About moving in that direction. Because he sees the big picture. And God warns us against these fleshly appetites that can cause us to make these kind of bad decisions. 1 John chapter 2 Verse 15 says, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. And that world is the world's system, all that the world has to offer. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's interesting. 
We can love the things of God or we can love the things of the world. And there's a difference. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three categories of lust. Fleshly lust, the lust of the eyes, materialistic lust, and the pride of life, approbation lust, if you prefer. But these are not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world's passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, the, 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 the long-term joy and happiness and stability of life comes from loving the things of God first. And you can't have both, does it? These are set in contrast to each other. You know, David calls this type of attitude, the desire for instant gratification, he calls them presumptuous sins in Psalm 19. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. He recognized the tendency of the flesh to be presumptuous and quick to gratify itself. And of course, Jesus puts it this way in regards to that attitude when he says, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now that might be regards to eternity, but even for the Christian, we often think that we can find happiness in short-term gratification rather than in living life as God directs. Well, the issue here, here in Genesis 25, is stated here at the end of the chapter when, he, when it's summarized. He says, thus, Esau despised his birthright. And I don't think this is talking about the fact that Esau walked away from this meal, you know, despising the whole thing. I think his actions are described here. His attitude towards his birthright is described here. He despised it. And that's the real problem here. Esau did not respect God's way. The way of the birthright was God's way. The family was to live, and he had no respect for that. Now, he's mentioned over in New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's turn there. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 where this event is mentioned. Hebrews chapter 12, towards the back of your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12, this, the preceding passage is a passage of divine discipline, how God disciplines and trains his children. And then he goes on to tell us that to be healed. But then it mentions for us here in verse 16 of this chapter, he says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And that refers to a later event, which we'll get to when, when, when Jacob is blessed rather than Esau. But in verse 16, it describes this event. And it calls him, the problem, he said, with Esau is that he was a, prof a profane person. That's what he's called here. He's called a profane person. It's some of the warnings that are listed in this passage. And he says, the, the, you know, we don't want, God does not desire people to be, have an orientation like Esau. The word profane simply means godless. I think if you have an ESV, it says unholy. Your word will say, will say it's really just an ungodliness. It's the opposite of being sacred. It's really being secular in our thinking. It's an orientation. Orientation of this, towards this world rather than towards the Lord. In Wiersbe's commentary, he says this about this word. He says, some people have the idea that a profane person is a blasphemous and filthy person. But Esau was a congenial fellow, a good hunter, a man who loved his father. He would have made a fine neighbor, but he was not interested in the things of God. 
and that's a profane person, an unholy person, one who's not interested in the things of God, one who does not take a, a divine perspective or orientation towards life. And I think there's a lot of people like that. In fact, I think sometimes there's a lot of churchgoers like that who really aren't interested in the things of God, the deep things of God, the daily things of God. They may go to church, but there is no, there's no hunger for to know God, to walk with God, and to, and to love him like he loved us. It's easy to fall into that kind of rut. And God calls that profane because if we're not oriented towards the divine, towards God, towards the things of God, towards the word of God, we're going to be oriented and occupied with the things of this world. And our actions will show it. It'll reflect the attitudes and appetites of this world. And so if you back up a little bit here, as I mentioned this context, if you jump back to verse 12, it says here in regards to divine discipline, chastening mentioned in verse 11, he says, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. So this is talking about the uh, spiritual healing. Make straight paths for your feet. And so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And so God's saying here on the, on, this, on the heels of divine discipline, the purpose of discipline is for restoration. It's for straightening out our lives. It's for spiritual healing. And then he goes and lists some things that are involved with that. Pursue peace with all people. And that's important. And holiness, with which no one will see the Lord. So we have a, a human direction and we have a godly direction. We should pursue peace with people, which God says is a reflection of his person. And we are to reflect holiness before God in our lives. That's part of the work that God is doing. Because in God's training in our lives, he's training us to live, be like Christ, isn't he? We're being molded into the image of Christ. We're being taught to be imitators of God. That's God's desire. And these are two things that, that, that are part of that in a general sense. Verse 13 says, make straight path. Oh, excuse me. Verse 15 says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And so in the middle of this passage, we're told to be careful concerning falling short of the grace of God, because it is God and his grace that is doing this work in us to make us Christ-like. And he says, don't fail to depend on the grace of God. Don't give up on what God is doing in you. And he mentions here this idea of this bitterness, and this may be a reference back to Deuteronomy 29.18. And Deuteronomy 29.18 says this to Israel, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so he warns the people of a profane person, one who has a worldly orientation, one whose heart turns away from the Lord our God and then serves the God of these nations. Now, we might not, in today's culture, think we're, we're, we can fulfill this verse because we don't put idols on our mantles, but we put idols in our driveway. We put idols in our priorities, in our lives. There are things that we worship before God, and that's a profane or worldly orientation. And the result is, among you, Israel, there could be a root of bitterness, bearing bitterness and wormwood. And God says here in Hebrews chapter 12, that that root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. It causes trouble. Well, and Jacob and Esau causes competitiveness and division in the family. And in our lives, many become defiled. And so our actions, when we fail to allow God's grace to 
to turn our heart towards God, to walk with God, to pursue God, to have a, a godly orientation. Uh, instead, in a worldly orientation, such a life bears bitterness and really poisons the family of believers. That's what he's saying. For Israel, it was their family, the family of Israel. For believers today, it's the, it's the church family today that gets poisoned when people simply live for the things below. And Esau was that kind of person who failed with the grace of God. He didn't depend on the grace of God. He didn't live the grace of God. Instead, it created a bitterness in his heart and towards others. Wiersbe also says in that same commentary, grace, God's grace does not fail, but we can fail to depend on God's grace. Esau is a warning to us to not live for lesser things. Now, I also find it interesting here, the next verse of Deuteronomy 29, after this warning of, of bitterness, the next verse in verse 19 says this, and I think this applies to our study today. Verse 19 says, And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. And what Deuteronomy is saying is that in this passage and what God is pronouncing on them, blessing and cursing, blessing if they follow the Lord, cursing if they turn from the Lord, he says, you know, this is what happens when we harden our hearts to the things of God, when we become profane or worldly in our orientation. He says, this fellow, unless you bless yourself in your heart, saying, I'm going to have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. Wow, that's a stunning statement. That's saying peace following selfishness is going to bring is, is going to be a reality. And that's a great deception. But that's how many people live. We live for ourselves. We're going to follow the dictates of our heart. We determine what God's will is, not, God, not allowing God to determine what his will is. We put ourselves first rather than God's first, and we think we're going to be happy. And that's the lie of the devil. And God warns them. That's what happens when you become profane, when you become unholy, when you become ungodly, when you have a worldly orientation. You think happiness can be found in this, in life here. And God's saying that's absolutely not true. And if you look back to Genesis chapter 25, I hope you kept a finger there. Esau had his plan for happiness. And in verse 32, we saw that he said, Look, I am about to die, so what is that birthright to me? His plan was, I'm going to exchange my birthright for a, cup of, for, a, for a bowl of stew. That was his plan. That's going to make him happy. He says that, that the spiritual things are insignificant if I can have the gratification of having my stew now, and I'll have peace. I'll have happiness. And yet, this is the opposite is really, in essence, what happened, is it not? You see, the choices we make in life reveal our orientation. And the flip side is true. Our orientation also drives the choices we make in life. They, you can't help but you can't disconnect them. In our life, we're going to live every day with, with for God or for self, or the fear of the Lord, or a godless life. We find the fleshly life versus the spiritual life. My dictates, as it was said in Deuteronomy, versus God's will. And we find also that those things affect others. We forget that sometimes. That's what Hebrews told us. Many become defiled or poisoned by our profane or worldly desires and direction. It doesn't mean a person's immoral. There are the worlds filled with moral and religious people who have simply are occupied with things below. 
things that the people who live lives that God has hasn't been able to make changes in for years because they are simply occupied with things in daily living. You know, for Esau, that attitude created a family culture. And we find that as parents, our orientation in life, displayed by our actions and our priorities and our attitudes, creates a culture in a family, doesn't it? Creates a direction. And we have a choice. Are we going to leave behind a godly heritage or a worldly heritage? You know, in Exodus 34, 7, it says this. It says, keeping mercy, God's keeps keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I always wondered about that. Why would God punish the third and fourth generation for great, great, great grandpappy or whatever? And you begin to realize that it's not a matter of punishing them for, for the previous generation as much as it is the attitude, the culture that's passed on for generations. And oftentimes it takes many generations for a profane or unholy, ungodly culture to be, to be changed. And you watch it in families. You watch it when, 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 when people begin to orient to the word of God, how slowly it begins to change from generation to generation to find people that walk holy with the Lord. Edom was a people who became an ungodly people as a nation. And I want you to turn to the last book of the New Testament, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, where we find, did I say New Testament? Old Testament. I said New Testament, didn't I? <laughs> Old Testament. So if you're lost, I must be too. <laughs> Malachi chapter 1. Just before Matthew, I'll make it easy. Now here we find a startling statement here, so bear with me as we, as we dissect this a little bit. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. And we find that statement as well in Romans chapter 9. But we must, first of all, have to understand, oftentimes in Scripture, when the Bible uses in, these, in, in, t in the same context, love-hate, it's a matter of choice or preference. It doesn't mean God has this vehement hatred for a people necessarily. Though, peop though, though Malachi became known as a wicked people here, in, as you go on in, in the... End of verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. And so they did eventually turn against the Lord. They became known as a people of wickedness. And, and though the Lord preferred Jacob in his divine sovereignty, that was his plan, and you can argue with God someday about that if you want when you get to glory, but that was his plan to choose Jacob over Esau we see that in Esau's life as he became that profane person, that unholy person, that person of worldly orientation, what happened in succeeding generations? They became a territory of wickedness, a people who were 
who, were, who did not know the Lord God, the people who stood against God. And that's tragic. But that's reality. That's real life, like we said at the beginning. That's how it works. And while God recorded for us in Genesis 25 the reality of the competitiveness in these two men and the, and the mistakes they made and the failure, failures they, they did, we see that the long-term consequence of Esau was he continued in that worldly orientation and produced a nation that were against the Lord, didn't know the Lord. And that's failing of the grace of God, failing to respond to God's love. You know, God's love was first demonstrated to us on the cross when the Lord Jesus went and died for us on, died for us on the cross. And when God offers salvation to mankind, it really isn't a you know, take it if you want it. It's, it's more of a directive. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. This is God's remedy for his people, his fallen people. God says, I found a solution, and it cost me dearly. It cost me my son, as Jesus paid for sins, past, present, and future on the cross, so that he could extend to us forgiveness. And we can be restored to a relationship with God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that, that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And in 1 John 2, that that sacrifice was a propitiation, was a satisfactory payment for our sins. And, that, and, and yet, in Romans chapter 3, we find that, that that forgiveness is free. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24 says. In Romans 5.1, it says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that love that God showed to us begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace he extended to us is, is a gift we receive freely by faith in Jesus Christ alone as our Savior. And then God continues to extend us grace in training us to live as he designed us to live. Because really, when you think about it, when sin entered man's life, it was an interruption. It was an invasion. Sin, man's body, man's life was never intended to include a life of sin, involved with sin and rebellion against God. You know, many of you know that Laura, my wife, just recently had heart surgery. We found out something interesting because she had a flesh valve. We don't know if it's a pig's valve, cow's valve, or whatever it might be, but she doesn't, if you want to ash, she doesn't moo or oink when she snores <laughs> at night. But we found in regards to that valve that, that the minute it's put in, the body begins to reject it, begins to fight it, because it's foreign tissue. And someday down the road, she's going to have to have another procedure to help us, a less, less invasive procedure to fix it some way, some 12, 15 years down the road. But the body fights it. It recognizes that it's foreign tissue, even though it works very well. And that's like sin. It's foreign tissue in our lives. It's, it's a foreign substance. We're not, we're not meant to live like that. And, and, it, and it makes life miserable. It doesn't belong there. And... And yet God in his grace in our lives will teach us how to live with it, how to have victory over it, how to avoid it. That's what God's grace teaches us in his love for us in life. Yet if you don't avail yourself of the grace of God and simply live, you know, a Sunday go to church Christian and nod to God and yet have a worldly orientation in all things in life, we could, you know, fulfill these verses and to create a descendants who stood against God. You know, it amazes me sometimes, and I know people, I know people in this community who know Christ as Savior and have spouses and children who do not. That just absolutely blows my mind. For someone to know they're going to heaven, knew Jesus, they trusted Christ, maybe as a younger person, yet don't seem to give a wit that they're 
family, loved ones, on the way to a crisis eternity. That's how selfish the flesh is. And yet God in his grace will give us the grace to walk in his favor. We don't have to fail the grace of God. If we respond to his discipline, if we make straight paths for our feet, if we take what the conviction that God brings to us and embrace it and by his grace and power apply it to our lives and claim that grace he supplies for godly living. That's God's desire for us. What we find in our account in Genesis 25 is two bad examples, don't we? Jacob in his selfishness, me first attitude. We find Esau in his godless orientation in life. And so... There's a challenge as we consider these things to us. What is going to be our orientation in life? And I might just close with these verses in Colossians chapter 3, which says to the Christian, if then you were raised with Christ, and if you're a believer, you were, raised to new life in Christ, new creations in Christ. If you are, it's th then seek those things which are above. This isn't, this isn't a, you know alternative way to live if you feel like it when you have time, if it fits your schedule. This is a life pursuit. This is seeking God in everything. This is all-inclusive. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. So seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. That's who, that's who we seek. In reality, it's the one who died for us, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We seek to honor him in our lives. Verse 2 goes on after we seek. Then verse 2, we set your minds on things above. There has to be a deliberate action. It is so easily to orient to worldly things, to let worldly things come between you and the Lord, to call worldly concerns, worldly, worldly pastimes, and worldly desires to come between you and God. And so many times I hear Christians say when there's an opportunity for Christian fellowship and encouragement, and think, well, we'll see, which translated means if I have nothing better to do. And what's our orientation? Set your minds on things above, it says, not on things on the earth. For you died, that is, you died with Christ, you died to self, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the opposite of what we saw in Esau. And it's God's desire for you and I. And when we claim God's grace, respond to his teaching in our lives, we can be assured that we can leave a godly heritage for generations of people who know and love the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful today for your patience with us, Father. Thank you that you do take time to discipline and train us, Father. You, you show us the way we should go. You supply the grace. You've given us of your spirit. You've given us your word. And you are involved in our daily lives, Father, to help us navigate life. And Father, I pray that we might take advantage of those provisions of grace that we might walk in dependence upon you, that we might orient our thinking and look at life through, through the perspective of your word, that your word might be the basis of wisdom and the, and the thing that guides our steps so that we might honor you and that we might not be a problem to others, might not poison others, but instead we can inspire others, especially our families and succeeding generations, our church families, to know and love and serve the Lord. So take these things now and apply them to our lives for your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.